You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 237 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall at the end of the last show, the fighting was finally over at Fredericksburg and darkness covered the landscape on the evening of December 13, 1862. On the northern part of the battlefield, seven federal divisions had been hurled against the Confederate position on Marie's Heights, but not a single Union soldier had reached the stone wall. In its fruitless attacks against Marie's Heights, the Federals suffered close to 8,000 casualties, while across the way, James Longstreet's Confederates lost barely a 1,000 men, making the combat here on this sector of the battlefield one of the most one-sided contests of the Civil War. Federal burial parties would report that Zooks, 53rd Pennsylvania, Mars, 69th New York, and Caldwell's 5th New Hampshire shared the sad honor of having their dead closest to the stone wall. When Sumner's and Hooker's casualties in front of Marie's Heights were added to Franklin's losses at Prospect Hill down below Fredericksburg, the butcher's bill for the federal attacks came to 1,284 dead, 9,600 wounded, and 1,769 captured or missing, a total of 12,653 Union casualties. Confederate losses on December 13th were 608 killed, 4,116 wounded, and 653 captured or missing, for a total of 5,337 casualties. With Civil War battles, simply looking at numbers of soldiers engaged and casualties suffered can be deceiving, but here they truly tell the tale, showing that Fredericksburg was the most lopsided defeat the Army of the Potomac suffered during the war. Those who say they would like to visit a battlefield seldom know what they are talking about. After darkness has put an end to the struggle, a hush settles over the field. Such a contrast to the roar of the fight. Never is silence more oppressive, more eloquent. You hear the cries of the wounded, which is never distinguished in the roar of battle. A stray shot hurtles through the darkness overhead. You hear the ambulance wheels grinding through the soil 
with sullen, muffled sound, like some monster crunching the bones of his victims. You see the outlines of forms gliding through the gloom, carrying on litters, pale, bloody men. Or perhaps your friend, with his hair matted with blood over his white face, and his dead eyes staring blindly up to the sky. You are startled by the yells of those lifted about after becoming cold and stiff in their blood. Private Erskine M. Church, 17th Connecticut Infantry, Zook's Brigade. The night was again cold and clear, and as we huddled together in line of battle to make the most of our scanty blankets, even fatigue scarcely sufficed to bring any continuous sleep to my eyes. At last, chilled to the marrow, I rose from the ground and paced up and down the line of battle in the hope of stimulating the sluggish blood currents by a little exercise. It must have been one or two o'clock in the morning. Apparently, I was the only one awake. Scarcely a sound disturbed the intense silence, but occasionally the solemn stillness of the night was broken by a faint and ghostly wail, which located itself at no special point, but seemed to rise like a mist from the face of the whole field of battle, and conveyed the impression of a widespread and terrible anguish. The unutterable sadness of that midnight wail from the battlefield of Fredericksburg has never left, and will never leave, my mind and memory. After a time, wearied and somewhat warmed by my exercise, I again lay down and fell into a deep sleep, from which I was awakened by the stir of the opening day. Lieutenant Henry E. Henderson, 9th Louisiana Infantry, Hayes Brigade. When the sun went down on December 13th and darkness brought an end to the fighting, the temperature plummeted and the bitter cold of a winter night once again gripped the countryside. Some of the federal troops had been ordered to hold their position, and other units remained pinned down for fear of enemy fire. The thousands of Union wounded still lying on the battlefield suffered appallingly. They cried out for help, for water, for their mothers, and for death to free them from their pain. Lieutenant Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, second in command of the 20th Maine, was pinned down before the stone wall and later described what he heard that night as, quote, a smothered moan that seemed to come from distances beyond reach of the natural senses, as if a thousand discords were flowing together in a keynote that was weird, unearthly, terrible to hear and bear, yet startling with its nearness. Some with delirious, dreamy voices murmuring loved names, as if the dearest were bending over them. And underneath, all the time, that deep bass note from closed lips too hopeless or too heroic to articulate their agony. After darkness descended upon the battlefield, the bodies of the dead quickly froze, and many were stacked up by those who still lived to form barriers against rebel bullets or the biting cold wind. Chamberlain slept between two corpses for shelter, drawing a third crosswise to serve as a pillow, and pulling a dead man's coat flap across his face for warmth. Where they could, Federal stretcher-bearers came and went, carrying off as many of the wounded as they were able to reach. Meanwhile, scavengers from both sides scurried across the battlefield, 
stripping the dead of valuables and shoes and clothing. More than once, Chamberlain remembered, I was startled from my unrest by someone turning back the coat skirt from my face, peering, half-vampire-like, to discover if it too were of the silent and unresisting, turning away more disconcerted at my living word than if a voice had spoken from the dead. That night, as Longstreet reinforced the Confederate position along the sunken road at the foot of Marie's Heights, across the Rappahannock, Ambrose Burnside pondered what to do next. The Grand Division commanders, Sumner, Hooker, and Franklin, gathered at Sumner's headquarters. Their gloomy reports depressed Burnside. The Army commander ended the discussion by announcing that he would personally lead his old command, the Ninth Corps, in an assault on Marie's Heights in the morning. The Fifth Corps would act in support of the attack. Hooker hadn't even wanted to continue the hopeless attacks on Marie's Heights on the 13th, and now with Burnside saying he wished to renew the assault the next day, the center Grand Division commander protested the idea vehemently. One officer reported that Hooker's, quote, whole appearance and manner of talking indicated disapproval and almost insubordination, end quote. The other generals also objected, but Burnside refused to change his mind. Franklin apparently proposed a new attack on Stonewall Jackson's lines, but Burnside said no, probably because he'd lost faith in Franklin for failing to carry out his orders on the 13th. After the meeting broke up, Burnside decided to actually cross the river and assess the situation for himself. By morning, he left Fredericksburg having to admit, quote, I found the feeling to be rather against an attack. In fact, it was decidedly against it, end quote. Burnside, however, again decided to ignore the consensus opinion and determined to try again anyway. The Army commander returned to his headquarters and notified Sumner to prepare the Ninth Corps for action. Across the lines, Robert E. Lee knew he could hardly have wished for a better outcome to the battle so far. He was up late, listening to a procession of his generals give their reports of the day's fighting. The officers found Lee, quote, in the highest spirits, end quote. Stonewall reported that there had been some hard fighting in his sector, but he assured Lee that he could maintain his front. James Longstreet's troops had beaten off numerous federal assaults on the 13th, and he expressed confidence that any renewal of the enemy's attack the next day would also be repulsed handily. Lee was certain that Burnside would try again on the 14th. Accepting the temporary breakthrough on Jackson's front, the Yankees had been beaten back so easily that it was hard for Lee to believe that Burnside had already made his main attack. The com Confederate commander, therefore, said that he reckoned the enemy would strike again with the dawn. Indeed, Lee hoped the Federals would once again batter themselves against his lines, for then the Army of Northern Virginia might even consider launching a counteroffensive against the reeling foe. Before midnight, a captured enemy courier was brought to Lee's headquarters. The man apparently carried orders telling the Federal Ninth Corps to prepare for a morning assault. The order confirmed everything Lee suspected, so he reiterated his orders to his generals to dig in and be ready for the new day.
Dear Madam, Private Josiah F. Murphy, who brings the dead body of your son, will tell you fully all the particulars. I know by judging my own feelings how bitterly you will feel his loss. I can say from an intimate acquaintance with him that he was as brave, resolute, and energetic, and at the same time as tender-hearted a man as I ever knew. When I first heard of his death, I didn't see him fall. I felt the same kind of pang as when I first heard of my brother's death, who was killed at Cedar Mountain. It was only a few nights before his death that he was telling me about his family and speaking of you in terms of the strongest affection. Every man in the regiment, from the colonel to the men of the other companies, respected and admired him as much as any officer that has ever belonged to the regiment. He was a most invaluable officer. A great deal of the superiority of Company I is due to Lieutenant Alley. I shall never cease to think of him with love to my dying day. I hope after this bloody war is over, I shall live to express to you personally what I have been writing in this letter. I remain, my dear madam, yours very respectfully, H. L. Abbott, Captain, Company I. Captain Henry L. Abbott 20th Massachusetts Infantry, Hall's Brigade. Abbott, who regarded Leander Alley, quote, almost as a brother, wrote that letter to the young lieutenant's mother from the field only hours after her son's death. Alley was killed instantly by a bullet through his left eye during the attack on Marie's Heights by Howard's division. In another letter, Abbott tried to tell his father about the death of his close friend, but stopped, stating that he couldn't, quote, say anything more about Allie, for thinking on such a subject makes a man bluer than he ought to be in the presence of the enemy. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On the morning of Sunday, December 14th, 1862, fog once again covered the frigid landscape. Like Robert E. Lee, the rank-and-file soldiers on both sides felt certain that Burnside would attack again. A rebel in Pickett's division said, quote, Everyone expected to see the battle renewed again. On the Federal side, morale plummeted as the men contemplated a renewal of the fighting. A Union soldier noted unhappily, quote, The present is dark, and the future, shall I say, darker. 
Throughout the early morning of December 14th, Union generals congregated at Bull Sumner's headquarters on the east side of the Rappahannock. Officers spoke openly against the new attack, and many asked Sumner to talk with Burnside and persuade him to cancel the planned assault. When Burnside finally arrived at Sumner's headquarters at about a quarter after ten, the right Grand Division commander, to his credit, took the opportunity to quietly suggest to Burnside that he reconsider his plans. Sumner told him, General, I hope you will desist from this attack. I do not know of any general officer who approves of it, and I think it will be disastrous to the Army. Burnside had always counted on Sumner's faithful support, and now to hear the old general say such a thing made him pause. Burnside later wrote that, quote, Advice of that kind caused me to hesitate, end quote. As reality began to set in on Ambrose Burnside, he called another council of war, and when it unanimously echoed Sumner's warning, Burnside finally relented. There would be no further attacks on the 14th. Across the way, as the morning hours passed away and there was still no sign of a federal attack, Robert E. Lee became convinced that Burnside had changed his mind about renewing the battle. In the afternoon, Lee tried to provoke an attack by staging a withdrawal along the center of Hood's line. He hoped to lure the Federals into launching an assault on this supposedly weakened portion of his line, but the Yankees refused to snap at the bait. Meanwhile, along the stone wall and sunken road, Longstreet's men spent the day engaged in a one-sided duel with the Federals pinned down in front of Marie's Heights. A soldier in the 7th Virginia recalled, quote, We commenced firing at any and everything moving in our front. In his book on the Battle of Fredericksburg, Frank O'Reilly writes about how the Federals flattened themselves on the ground, unable to twitch without provoking a shot from the rebels. So many Confederates would fire at the least movement, using up so much ammunition in the process, that finally their officers permitted only three men from each company to shoot at a given time. But every so often a daring Yankee would spring up and dash across the ground, triggering a tremendous volley from the rebels. As that one-sided battle consumed much of the day on Sunday, the wounded Yankees, still lying helpless near the stone wall, begged pitifully for help and especially for water. Soldiers on both sides could hear the heart-wrenching cries. The appeals affected many, but no one could venture forth to offer any assistance without provoking a flurry of musketry. However, a 20-year-old sergeant in the 2nd South Carolina named Richard Roland Kirkland was particularly moved by the plight of the Union wounded. He went to General Kershaw and asked if he could take water out to the injured Federals. But Kershaw refused to give the young sergeant permission, telling him he would get a bullet through his head for his trouble. Kirkland, however, would not be put off. He told Kershaw, If you will let me, I am willing to try it. Impressed by Kirkland's determination and compassion, Kershaw gave in, saying, I will not refuse your request, trusting that God may protect you. Kirkland asked if he could have a white flag to stop the shooting, but that Kershaw could not allow, since military protocol forbade it. All right, sir, Kirkland replied. I'll take the chances. The South Carolina sergeant filled several canteens and then entered the open ground between the lines. Federals immediately opened fire, 
but Kirkland safely reached the first wounded Yankee and knelt to give him a drink. He placed a knapsack under the man's head, covered him with a blanket, and then moved on to the next wounded soldier. And the Federals stopped shooting and watched. Troops on both sides cheered as the brave sergeant moved from man to man. Frank O'Reilly writes that the halt in shooting, quote, may have prompted others to come forward with more water. Whether Kirkland acted alone or pioneered a host of encounters and somehow became a composite for all of the work of mercy is hard to determine. Seventeen years after the battle, a newspaper correspondent begged for the name of the man who gave water to his enemies. General Joseph Kershaw responded instantly, naming Richard Kirkland as the Angel of Marie's Heights. O'Reilly concludes his thoughts on this incident by writing, quote, Regardless of who should get the credit, the act of humanity far transcended the individuals who performed it. Such deeds as this, wrote a northern soldier, are the redeeming features of war. As the sun went down on December 14th, the Federals settled in for another long, cold night on the battlefield. The mud froze once again as the temperature dropped. Outfits pinned down for a day and a half were at last relieved and could withdraw from the killing fields in front of Marie's Heights. At about half past six that evening, the sky suddenly began to light up. At first, appearing from below the horizon, a brilliant display of color intensified and spread across the northern sky. Columns of eerie light and varied hues silently shot up in the night sky. To see the majestic Aurora Borealis, the northern lights, so far south was a rare thing indeed. In fact, most of the Confederates had never seen anything like it, and they stood awestruck. Although they were quick to proclaim it as a sure sign that nature itself was celebrating their triumph at Fredericksburg. One rebel said, The heavens were hanging out banners and streamers and setting off fireworks in honor of our victory. During the night of December 14th and all through the next day, the Union High Command debated about whether to renew the attacks, hold on to Fredericksburg, or retreat. Bull Sumner favored holding on to Fredericksburg, although for what purpose is unclear. A quick ride across the river and into the battered town confirmed the uselessness of Sumner's suggestion to an increasingly downcast and unhappy Ambrose Burnside. Returning to the near side of the Rappahannock, he finally issued the orders for the Army to retreat. The Army of the Potomac's retreat from the far side of the Rappahannock may have been the most successful thing it did the entire campaign. A terrific windstorm, and then a few hours later, pouring rain on the night of the 15th, helped cover the Federal withdrawal so that the Confederates had no idea the Yankees were slipping away in the darkness. Union engineers cut the anchors on the pontoon bridges at dawn, and after the spans had swung around to the near bank, they were quickly dismantled. On the morning of December 16th, the Confederates discovered that the Federals had retreated. The Yankees had also left a good many of their dead behind on the battlefield. So many Union dead were still lying about, in fact, that Robert E. Lee took the unprecedented step of requesting a truce so that Federal burial parties could come back across the river and inter their fallen comrades. 
In the wake of the federal retreat, the rebels reoccupied Fredericksburg by mid-morning, and they were stunned at the devastation of the place. Captain Charles Blackford of the 2nd Virginia Cavalry Regiment rode into the ruined town and found the house he had lived in as a child. Writing to his wife, Blackford described what he had seen. Quote, Every fence is broken down, and doors and windows of the houses broken up, and much of the furniture pulled out into the streets and badly used up and scattered. Some twenty-five houses have been burned, and almost every house shows the mark of having been struck by some kind of missile, most of them shell or solid shot. The part of the town known as Sandy Bottom was the scene of the most terrible fighting, and every house facing Marie's Hill is covered with bullet marks. Mr. Marie's house, Brompton, which is of brick, is raked by musket balls until it looks as if a hailstorm had scoured it. The town was full of dead men when evacuated. It seems very strange to see a deserted town with nothing but corpses of dead men and horses for inhabitants. Blackford continued, saying, quote, our house was used as an operating hospital, and many Yankees were buried in the backyard, one just at the foot of the back steps. In the dining room, the large table was used as an operating table, and a small table by its side had a pile of legs and arms upon it. I poured them out into the backyard. The Yankees had been up in the cuddy and taken out barrels of old letters which were scattered all over the yard. Among them I found a letter from Light Horse Harry Lee to my grandfather. The whole house was covered with mud and blood, and it was hard to realize it was the dear old house of my childhood. We'll talk a bit more about the aftermath of the Battle of Fredericksburg in the next episode, but we thought we'd end this show with the pair of quotations that are attributed to Robert E. Lee and Abraham Lincoln that probably sum up the essence of the battle for most students of the Civil War. On December 13th, Lee saw Confederate infantry defeat a Union thrust and then pursue the Yankees out of some woods and onto the open ground beyond. According to a member of Jeb Stewart's staff, Lee turned to James Longstreet and, in low tones, noted, It is well this is so terrible. We should grow too fond of it. That brief observation has done much to define Lee and the Army of, the Nord of Northern Virginia. There's Lee, the brilliant general, his martial spirit aroused, quietly taking pride in the fact that his army is demonstrating their superiority over the foe on yet another battlefield. Meanwhile, in Washington, after news of the debacle at Fredericksburg, the war's progress, or lack of it, was a source of intense frustration and deep unhappiness for Abraham Lincoln, who told a friend, If there is a worse place than hell, I am in it. And with those dozen words, Lincoln summed up his frustration with Burnside, his despair at the scale and futility of federal losses, and his awareness of the battle's likely negative impact on northern politics and morale. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Don Troiani's Civil War Soldiers by Don Troiani and Earl J. Coates with Michael J. McAfee. 
Don Troiani's paintings are some of our favorite Civil War art. We have several books with his artwork, and apparently he also has quite the collection of weapons, uniforms, and equipment, uh, many of which, along with items from other collections, are featured in this 2017 book along with his paintings. It's actually a nice gift if you want to treat yourself or the Civil War buff in your life to something you can just sit and look through for hours. Well, don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Speaking of artwork, just yesterday we released members episode number 68 on the story behind a famous Civil War painting, The Peacemakers, by G.P.A. Healy, which depicts the March 1865 meeting between Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses S. Grant, William Tecumseh Sherman, and David Dixon Porter. Yep, uh, so the members of the Strawfoot Brigade can check that out, including the newest members to enlist, Doran, Nick, Michael, Scott, and John. And then we also want to thank Terry G. for his donation this past week. And with that, we'll say thank you to all of you for listening to this episode of the Civil War 1861-1865 to A History Podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us for the next show in two weeks when we'll look a bit more at the aftermath of the Battle of Fredericksburg, including the infamous Mud March. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. They lay so thick on the ground that General Lee sent over a flag of truce to General Burnside, asking him to send over a detail to bury his dead there. A remnant of what was left of the Irish Brigade came over with their native farming implement, the spade. They dug a long trench the length of a modern dread- dreadnought and the width of the height of a man, and were as long a time in placing the bodies side by side as it took the gunners to lay them out there. It was a cold, bleak, dreary winter day, with a fog over the plain from the Rappahannock, so dense that we could discern an object only a few feet away from our place of concealment behind the sunken road. Our boys stood by, watching the biggest funeral it had ever been our lot to witness. The saddest mourner in all this long funeral train was a large Newfoundland dog, who had escaped the shot and shell of battle and for those two days and nights he had kept faithful vigil by the side of his dead master, an officer. With mournful look and downcast countenance, he followed the corpse to the trench, and when he saw the hostile dirt cover his master's remains in a hostile land, he exhibited a human sympathy in his mourning, more so than any there in human shape. Sergeant Charles C. Cummings 17th Mississippi Infantry, Barksdale's Brigade.